You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. We turn this morning. We say goodbye to the book of Numbers, at least for a while, and we turn to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, the verses 1 to 23. Our text this morning is taken from the verses 5 to 13, as well as the verses 18 to 23. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. 
When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. Our text this morning, then, is taken from Luke chapter 1, the verses 5 to 13, as well as the verses 18 to 23. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, waiting is hard. Waiting patiently is even harder. Just talk to any number of husbands who are waiting for their wives for one reason or another. Or just talk to parents waiting for their children to finish at the dentist. Or just talk to children waiting for dad to bring them to a hockey game. Waiting is something we do badly. And it is something that becomes even more difficult if what we are waiting for is really important. And that, you can say, was the case among the believing remnant in Israel. How long had they not been waiting in the Old Testament? For hundreds, even thousands of years, they had been waiting for the Messiah to appear. They looked for him. They prayed for him. They sang about him. They talked about him. But yet he didn't come. But you know, there was at least one small consolation for every time when the people were about to give up, a new prophet would appear and sprinkled among his prophecies would be new words of hope. A virgin will conceive, will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, Isaiah. I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, Jeremiah. I will place over them one shepherd, and he will tend them, Ezekiel. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, Micah. And so there were more, more words of promise. And from time to time they came and they kept the messianic hope alive. But then slowly, beloved, things changed. No more prophets came. No new words of hope were heard. It was as if the doors of heaven were closed and as if God was silent. For 400 years, this continued. Just imagine that, if you can. Divine silence for 400 years. Today, it's the year 2007. Go back 400 years and you come to the year 1607. It brings you to a time just after the Great Reformation, before the Renaissance, before the American and French Revolution. Before the American Civil War, before cars, electricity, washing machines, and air conditioning. Just imagine a period of silence stretching from 1607 to 2007. 
Well, such was the situation. On that day when the priest, Zechariah, stepped into the temple. For 400 years, no word had been heard from the Lord. Oh, there were, of course, a lot of pretend words, people who stood up and claimed that they had received some kind of divine revelation. But, you know, nothing came along that passed the test and was really believed. Since the days of Nehemiah, silence had reigned. And now, beloved, all of that is about to change. The heavenly boycott on Revelation is about to end. A new day is dawning. And how so and in what way? And to whom? Beloved, I preach to you on the following theme. The Lord announces the start of his messianic offensive to Zechariah. And we shall see that it begins with a priestly ministration. It continues with a heavenly revelation. And it concludes with a human reservation. Well, beloved, these... 400 years that preceded our text may have been silent as far as the messianic prophecy and divine revelation were concerned. However, you know, they were far from silent when it came to political intrigue and developments. When the Old Testament closes, it are the Persians who are in control of Israel and much of the world. After them had come Alexander the Great for a brief period of time, and next came the Egyptians and the Syrians who dominated the land of Israel for more than a 100 years. But then the Jews, under the leadership of the Maccabean family, revolted, and for several decades Israel breathed the heady air of independence. Why, some even consider that this would have been an ideal time for the Messiah to finally appear. Only he didn't come. Instead, the Romans came. And along with the Romans came some petty rulers whom the Romans rewarded and put in charge. Yes, and one of them was Herod. He is called in our text King of Judea. However, it should be noted that he was only half Jewish, not a believer, and that really his power came from Rome. It was the Roman Senate who crowned him and not the Jewish people. Well, it was in his day, in the day of Herod, that we are told about a priest. His name is Zechariah. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And he was thus a Levite, more specifically even as a priest. He was also a descendant of Aaron. We learned in our recent series on the book of Numbers that while all the descendants of Levi were set aside for tabernacle and later temple service, only some of them were singled out to be priests. And those some had to belong to the line of Aaron. And now in Zechariah's case, it should also be added that not only was he a descendant of Aaron, but so too was his wife Elizabeth. Together they shared the same ancestry. 
But there's something else that's even more important, for together they shared the same faith and the same integrity. Look at verse 6 where it states, Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now that's a noteworthy description. It highlights and it stresses their walk of life and faith. At the same time, it's not the kind of language that we always use today. Today, when we describe a believer or a believing couple positively, we may remark that they are committed Christians or really spiritual people or even nice, sensitive, caring people. But what we do not hear anymore today is mention of how they deal with the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord. Many would even say today that's far too too legalistic, far too rigid. And at the same time, there's also something else in this description that should catch our attention. It says that they were upright in the sight of God. I suspect that these days we are much more concerned about being perceived as as being upright in the sight of men than in the sight of God. And yet Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were both. First and foremost, they were in good standing with the person of the Lord God. And secondly, they were in good standing with the will of God. In other words, no one could point a finger at them and accuse them of misconduct or mistreatment in any form. All in all, this represents a great biblical model. As well, it should constitute an aim that we all should strive for. First, make sure that your relationship to God is right. And that now means right to the great saving work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And second, live a life of conformity to all the commandments of the Lord. Christ may have fulfilled them, but he has not abolished them. Instead, he has given you his Holy Spirit so that you might live according to them. And so, beloved, there is much that is positive here. But there is also something that is sad. Our text said simply, after this glowing personal description, they had no children. Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. Note these words express no sadness, frustration, bitterness, or emotion. But nevertheless, we we do know it was there. Later, we can hear Elizabeth speaking about her disgrace. You see, both of them were blessed and they were burdened. They were blessed to be a priestly stock. But they were burdened because they were barren. And barren was, no matter what sort of a positive spin you try to put on it, it was felt and viewed as a form of divine judgment 
and social inferiority. Barren couples, especially barren women, lived under a cloud. Speak to Sarah, to Rachel, to Hannah. Their lives were deemed to be suspect, failed over. No children meant no future, no posterity, no share in the messianic future. In other words, life was hard for this priestly couple. But then one day things brightened up considerably. What happened? Well, it had to do with Zechariah's priestly work. As mentioned earlier, Zechariah was a priest in the line of Aaron. However, he was not the only priest. As a matter of fact, there were 18,000 priests in his day. 18,000 priests divided into 24 divisions, and the division of Abijah was number 8. And now because of such a large number, each division could only serve in the temple two weeks in a year. And also every day, two priests went into the holy place, one in the morning and one in the evening. So that meant that only 28 priests were needed from each division. And yet, each division had hundreds of priests in it. How was a choice to be made? It was decided by the use of the law. The law determined as to which priests would actually go into the holy place. As well, it was decided that a priest could only experience this honor once in his life, if at all. Yes, and now we are told, beloved, that one day when the division of Abijah was to have its turn, the lot fell on Zechariah. And how that must have stunned him, and and how that must have thrilled him. He, He was chosen, chosen at last to offer incense on behalf of the people in the holy place. Finally, he's going to enter into the heart of his office. At last, his years of priestly service are going to be crowned. Here then is a man who feels satisfaction and fulfillment in his office, in his work, in his calling. He cannot find it in his family life because he has no children. To some extent he can find it in his marriage, but that's colored with sadness and with disappointment. But thankfully he can at least find it in his church work. But is that how it's supposed to be? No, beloved, as important as church work may be, a man is supposed to find fulfillment in all that he is, in all that he does, in his marriage, in his family, in his church, in his work. And brothers and sisters, I hope that that is true of you. That you find satisfaction 
in all of your relationships, in all of your tasks, in all of your activities. And so, beloved, I'm sure that on that designated day, whether it be for morning or evening sacrifice, we are now told there was a spring in Zechariah's step and a smile on his face. He entered the temple with great anticipation. At last he would be serving the Lord in the inner sanctuary. And so first he gets dressed in his priestly regalia. And he walks to the outer court and he sees the people assembled waiting and praying. And next he goes into the holy place. No doubt with a degree of trepidation. And he approaches the altar of incense. But then suddenly, suddenly he receives the shock of his life. For standing on the right side of the altar of incense is an angel. I ask you, how did Zechariah know it was an angel? Some think, some children especially think that Zechariah must have known because he had wings. But you know, the idea that angels have wings has no support in Scripture. Sorry, that couldn't have been it. So it must have been something to do with his appearance, his form, or, or even his voice. Did he appear in a great light? Did he have some kind of unique form? Did he have some sort of special voice? We do not know. All we know, and all we're told, is that it was an angel. Somehow, Zechariah knew he was dealing with an angel. He instinctively realized that here before him was a heavenly being. And indeed, note his reaction. It's one of sheer fright. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Perhaps he thought to himself, here goes the greatest day of my life. What have I done? Where did I go wrong? But notice the angel is quick to settle him down. He goes straight to his message. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. And you are to give him the name John. More shocking stuff. You know, here he's about to perform the greatest service of his priestly life. And it's interrupted by an angelic birth announcement. And let's face it, when you're as old as Zechariah was, such an announcement takes a bit of getting used to. To suggest that Zechariah would have been instantly glad is surely an exaggeration. First, he has to digest the stupendous news. A son? A son for me? 
A son for Elizabeth, a son at last. A son, can it be true? Of course, you may be inclined to say that Zechariah must have been glad right away, for had he not been praying for a son, the angel says to him, your prayer, your prayer has been heard. Now that raises some interesting questions. What has been heard? Was Zechariah in his old age still praying for a son? Almost all the commentators say no. The text and the context would also say no. So what has been heard? What has been heard in heaven? Well, some say that, you know, this is a reference to all of Zechariah's old prayers. And that for many, many years he and Elizabeth had prayed and prayed for a son. And now, now finally this prayer is being heard. Personally, I think another interpretation makes more sense. And it's this. Together with Anna and Simeon, Elizabeth and Zechariah belong to those who were looking for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. And the result is that now when Zechariah at last gets a chance to go into the temple and the holy place, he does not do so with his heart filled with a personal request. No, his heart is filled and is burdened with the needs of the nation. After all, the fact that he gets to go there is not about personal achievement and personal goals. It's about being a representative of the nation, of the people. And what do the people need? They need their Savior. They need their Messiah. And so what was really on the heart and the lips of Zechariah was, Oh Lord, how long? How long do we still have to wait? And the answer of the Lord, it comes straight from heaven. It comes to him in the form of an angel. It comes even more in the hearing of a prayer. And how is that prayer heard? By giving a son to Elizabeth and Zechariah. A son who is going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. While the angel even adds another heavenly instruction, you are to give him the name John. Usually a father or mother both name a child here. God names the child. You see, this is not so much a name giving as it is a revelation. And what does John mean? It means the Lord is gracious. In other words, this name is all about grace. 
It's all about favor. It's all about surprising, unexpected favor. For that's what the name is all about. It's about something that no one can or has ever earned. And so this child that is coming is going to represent God lavishing his unearned, unmerited, undeserved grace and favor on his people. And the angel says more, as we're going to see hopefully in a subsequent sermon. But you know, taken together, what all of this means is that there is no doubt that God's 400-year-old embargo on revelation to Israel is over. And not only is the embargo over, but the day is fast and finally approaching the day when the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. The virgin son is coming at last. Emmanuel will soon be here. The righteous branch is about to sprout. And believe it or not, the son to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth will blaze the way before him. So, What does Zechariah think about all this? Well, in truth, he does not know what to think. He doubts and he questions. Verse 18, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in age. You see, he didn't enter the temple praying for a son. Such a thought was far from his mind. Yet a son he shall have. And you know, to confirm it, the angel does two things. First, he identifies himself as Gabriel. And he adds the ominous words, I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. In other words, Zachariah is not dreaming. He's not hallucinating. No, what he is hearing comes from a real angel, an angel who had appeared previously to Daniel. And in addition, what he is hearing comes straight from heaven. Gabriel is only the messenger. And finally, what has been told to him represents, the angel says, good news, gospel. This is the gospel that will change your life, Zechariah, that will change Elizabeth's life, that will change Israel's life, that will change the life of the world. But beloved, not only does Gabriel say all of this, He also does something. He throws Zechariah into deafness and speechlessness. You will be silent and not able to speak. And why? Because you did not believe my words. Now you might wonder, is this 
Is this fair? Here, Zechariah is being disciplined for doubting. But what about Sarah, way back in Genesis chapter 18? She not only doubts, but she also laughs and mocks. And she's not struck deaf and dumb. Well, beloved, perhaps the best way to see this matter is to see what happens to Zechariah not so much as a judgment, but rather as a sign. A sign that reinforces the message that something really special has happened in the temple. And you know, that's how the people standing outside understood it. They waited and they waited for Zechariah to come out and to give the priestly blessing. And and when at last he did come out, he, he couldn't speak. And so what did they conclude? He's seen a vision in the temple. Strange things are happening in the temple, unheard of things. When have you ever heard of a priest coming out of the temple speechless? What's going on? What does it mean? Well, they do not know. And Zechariah cannot say. He cannot say because the time for speaking had not yet come. The next number of months would still be a time of silence. A time of silence about the greatest news in all of the world and how disappointing and frustrating that must have been. God's embargo of revelation to Israel as a whole is going to last a little longer. But soon, soon a time of speaking will come. And indeed, beloved, you and I, we live in just such a time. This coming festive season means that this is a time to sing, to rejoice, to celebrate and to share. But you know, it also means this is a time to speak and to witness. We live in a world that is more and more drawing down the curtain and receding back into the darkness. And you know, in such a time and in such a situation, it is so necessary that the people of God speak about the hope that is in them. And that is Jesus Christ, who is ever and ever will be the only hope of the world. As we should speak and we can speak. You know, in these days there is no longer an embargo on God's revelation. We have the whole word of God, the full word, the complete word. We have all that we need to speak day in and day out. For Jesus Christ, the final revelation of God has come. And he's coming again. True, the church today is in a sense still a waiting church. Only now, 
We are waging armed with the word of God. Armed with the spirit of prophecy. We are waiting full of hope. And expectation. For the coming. Of the day. Of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you. We thank you that together this morning we could go back in history, back those thousands of years ago to your people and to the revelation that came to Zechariah. Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time you broke through the silence And you gave the glorious news of the coming of John the Baptist, but even more the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. Finally, the waiting is going to be over. And Father, we thank you too that today, as your people, we are still waiting. Not for his first coming, but waiting for his return. We thank you, Father, that as we wait, we are armed with your word and with your spirit, with all of its glorious promises, with all of its power, with all of its majesty. Oh, Father, we pray that in these days we may speak and witness wherever there is opportunity to the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.